This is an NAC podcast. Welcome to an extra edition of the NACOcast. I'm Martin Jones, sending in for Nick Atkinson. In this supplementary series of the NACOcast, we feature some of the best pre-concert chats here at the National Arts Center in Ottawa. In this edition, Robert Harris, CBC producer and host, explores Beethoven the Revolutionary. I hope you enjoy this episode of the NACOcast. Hello, um, good evening. I'm Robert Harris. Um, I'm so delighted you're here. Um, so unfortunately, um, we only have 30 minutes to talk about Beethoven, the revolution. It's probably good for you because my guess is you'd probably rather hear the Eroica Symphony, um, which lasts about an hour, than hear me talk about it, which could be about two hours long. So I'll try and keep it, keep it um, to a minimum. So. What I'm here to talk about is Beethoven the Revolutionary. It's sort of a truism in, in Western society that Beethoven um, is a great revolutionary. But what's interesting is when you try and analyze that a little bit, um, it gets a little slippery. It starts to slip away. So there are basically three reasons why we have come to think of Beethoven as a revolutionary um, figure. And one is his, his, his personality. Because Beethoven represents for us this um, sort of heroic ideal uh, of the creative person. Person who is sort of like Prometheus. Now Prometheus was the Greek god who um, took pity on mankind and gave mankind fire so that mankind could, could build things, could create civilization. And he was punished for that by the gods who didn't want mankind to have these powers. And Beethoven, to some extent, is this Promethean figure, uh, this man who suffered personally, suffered from deafness, suffered from sort of being a social outcast, suffered from so many different things. But amidst that suffering gave us these great gifts of his music and his art. And this is such a cherished notion for us. You know, if we had known Beethoven, if Beethoven were sitting here or if he was in the wings, he wouldn't have known what we were talking about, you know? In other words, he didn't live his life that way. He didn't really see himself that way. Um, because he was a working musician. Um, he was a working composer. We've added that to him. It's, it's, it's a very convenient myth, and I'll, I'll explain in a second why it's so important to us. Um, it's really this, one of the centerpieces, even if you don't know anything about classical music, you know that image that you guys have out on the posters, that scowling Beethoven, the Beethoven who represents the individual, the individual struggling against society and struggling against fate. So that's, that's a, the one way Beethoven is revolutionary. Um, he wouldn't quite have known what, he wouldn't necessarily have accepted that. Um, 
The second way he's revolutionary is as a composer, you know, as a person who, who um, within the world of music itself, pushed the boundaries, pushed music forward. And all through his life, people were always coming up to him and telling him how revolutionary he was, and every single time, he said, no, I'm not. He did not. So if he was unsure of himself as a heroic figure, he was absolutely sure that he was not a revolutionary composer. Um, to him, and I'll I think he's probably right in this actually, um, what he was doing as a composer was following along the formal and musical footsteps of Joseph Haydn and Mozart. Um, to, you know, in some ways, Schumann was a more original composer, Wagner was a more original composer. Oddly enough, Beethoven wasn't that original. Uh, and what I mean by that is he didn't invent new forms. Haydn invented the symphony by and large. He invented the string quartet. Beethoven used these forms that some other people had invented and he improved upon them for sure. For whatever reason, Beethoven always was very nervous about calling himself a revolutionary composer. So on the first revolutionary, he's 50-50. On the second revolutionary, he's absolutely opposed. So why, is, why do we call this guy a revolutionary figure? Um, and the reason for that is the third reason, which is he lived in a revolutionary time and he embodied that time. That's why Beethoven was revolutionary, is that he absorbed into himself and gave back to us the spirit of his times. You know, we forget this. Um, um, so Beethoven lived um, during both the American um, and the French revolutions. You know, we, we, this sort of trips off our tongue now. Um, these, the, the, you know, the French Revolution, you know, we're, we're still living that revolution. The life we live today, our lives, began in Beethoven's lifetime, began with those um, revolutions. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to me. So William Wordsworth, speaking about this in one of his later poems, an autobiographical poem called The Prelude, said about the time of the French Revolution, he said, bliss it was in that dawn to be alive but to be young was very heaven. Uh, I, I can't, it's bliss it was in that dawn to be alive. Can you imagine what it must have meant for a man now in his 50s, I guess, to talk about the time 1780, 1790. Well, Wordsworth and Beethoven were exactly the same age, both born in 1770. So when they were 19, the Bastille was stormed. And when they were in their 20s, all of these old aristocracies of Europe fell one after another. And the rights of man were proclaimed. And it was so exciting. And it was so a magnificent a time for them. Um, we forget it was a revolutionary time. So one of the most extraordinary things to me about this time is that for a brief period of time, seven years, um, the government of France started the calendar all over again. When Robespierre took over in 1792, they renumbered the years of the calendar, starting with one. 1792 was one. That lasted for about seven years, and if, you st if historians go crazy, because all of these documents are, you know, July the 23rd, four. You know, like, like four was a long time earlier, but they felt so powerfully this sense that, that something new was beginning, that they couldn't bear to use the old calendar. They couldn't bear to say it's 1794, because it was four, it was three, it was that. Can you imagine us doing that today? Can you imagine something happening in the world 
that would be so powerful to us and so new for us that we couldn't call it 2012. We would renumber the calendar and call it one. That's how powerful this revolution was in 1789 to the minds of Europe. You know, it's very interesting to me because um, this is our world. You see, here's, I mean, it is Ottawa, so I, I, I have to talk politics. So I'm not going to talk big P politics, I'm going to talk tiny little P politics. But, um, so we're in a crisis in the Western world right now, in my opinion, and the crisis right through the Western world. And the crisis we're in is that revolution began our world. In other words, okay, so they eventually turned the calendar back to 1790, whatever it was, but in some ways they're right. You know, 1792 was the year one, and we're in the year, what, 210 of that, or 220 of that revolution. And those ideals that have become so commonplace to us, you know, we forget that they were revolutionary ideals and consequently forget that we, we must continue to um, fight for them in a revolutionary way. So if you go from the rights of man and whatever that was in, you know, 1780 whatever to our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you know, 1980 whatever, it's a direct line, right? All of the ideas that became our Charter of Rights and all of the ideas that became the Bill of Rights in the United States around the same time, I might add, so we're much later. Um, all those ideas are French revolutionary ideas. And what we don't realize, I think, is that how revolutionary they were, you know? Let's take a simple example, okay? The notion that men and women should be treated equally under the law is, you know, it's, it's the law of our country. Um, you know, for most people, I think, in North America, it's sort of a gimme, you know? It's, it's, it's sort of, yeah, that makes sense, you know, that, that everybody should be treated equally. Do we have any idea how radical an idea, a notion that is? You know, whenever you want to start human history, you know, 4,000 BC, 10,000 BC, 150,000 BC, up until about 1789, which is over here somewhere, um, the notion that men and women would be treated equally was considered absurd. How could, I mean, absurd. And they weren't, you know? They weren't in primitive societies, they weren't in biblical societies, they weren't in medieval societies, they weren't in, you know, Renaissance societies. They never were, you know? And then we decided, we in the West, that this was now going to be the rule. This was, in fact, going to be the way things were going to be. Um, it's a radical idea. And I think what's happened in the West is we've, we've become complacent about these ideas, you know? That among many others, you know? The notion that, for example, um, in a democracy that, you know, the guy who has been in this country, you know, for 10 years or 15 years, um, who makes, you know, $10,000 or $20,000 a year, has a vote that is absolutely equivalent and equal to somebody who's making $10 million a year, you know, who gives, uh, you know, all of it to charity, whose family has been in this country for, you know, eight generations. The notion that you know, when it comes to the voting booth, each, those people are equal and equivalent. This was, again, radical, radical, radical notion. Because until this moment, of course, people with privilege and people with prestige had more power politically. So, as I say, we've become completely used to this. And the problem, I think, our, our, if we're in a crisis now in Western civilization, is that we've forgotten how radical those ideas were and mistakenly thought that they were, um, that those battles were over. 
We made the mistake of thinking that we didn't need to refight those battles or reevaluate in a 2012 context exactly what that meant. Because the world's a lot different in 2012 than it was in 1789. And maybe we need to reevaluate um, what those equalities and what those revolutionary ideals mean. But there are a lot of people in our society who are now beginning to question a lot of those givens, you know? They're not sure they're working for us. Um, so listening to the Eroica Symphony, if you want to know what it has to do with it, it reminds us of the power of those ideas when they were fresh and when they were new. So the Eroica Symphony, among all of Beethoven's, or many of them, the Ninth Symphony is sort of in the same mode. They're there for us. For Beethoven, they were there to announce a new world, right? For us, I think, they're there for us to remind ourselves of the power of that world, um, to remind ourselves of the values of that world. Um, so that, and it's hard, you know? I mean, if you've, I mean, in some ways, if you've never heard the Eroica Symphony before, you're way luckier than the rest of us who have heard it many, many times, right? Or the Fifth Symphony, or the Ninth Symphony, you know? Because you should be able, you should, in a perfect world, we would have a little device in our heads that would allow us to listen to the Fifth Symphony and then press a button and then forget that we'd ever heard it before. So the next time we heard it, it would be like the first time we ever heard this music, right? Um, so what happens, of course, in classical music is the power that some of this music originally had starts to just get dulled. You know, it's, it's, it's impossible for it not to happen. You know, and if you have a great performance, you're lucky sometimes it comes back to life, but it's not easy. You know, I'll just I mean, I'll be honest, it's not easy for the musicians playing this music. You know, growing up, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're a violin player in the National Arts Center Orchestra, you've, been, you've, you've known this music probably since the time you were, what, 17 or 18? Um, it's so much part of our heritage. So part of what I'd like to do and part of what Beethoven is there to do is to wipe it clean, you know, wipe all of the accumulated sort of dirt and grime and, you know, of, this, of the centuries, two of them, since this piece was written, uh, 1802 basically, um, and regain that sense of incredible power. It's more than power. So what you hear in the Eroica, so let me go back, so let me go back to number two when I talk about the symphony itself, and that is Beethoven's claim that he wasn't really a revolutionary composer. Well, the Eroica Symphony is revolutionary mainly for one major reason, and that's its scope, its length. It's incredibly long, you know? It's almost an hour long. Um, before Beethoven, you know, Beethoven's contemporaries, Mozart and Haydn, symphonies, 26 minutes, 25 minutes, you know, 20 and change, right? The first movement of this four-movement symphony can run to 17 minutes. That's extraordinarily long. So the one revolutionary thing, at least, that Beethoven did was just take those basic proportions of the symphony and expand them to enormous length. I've told this story before, but you know what? Forgive me, because I'm old, and I'm going to tell it again. Um, so my favorite, so the Eroica Symphony was, was um, it was, had a private performance in 1802, and then it had its first public performance, I think, in 1803. And it was considered, because of its length, among other things, quite a radical and, you know, symphony. And, and if you read the, the original reviews of the Eroica, um, half the audience thought it was gibberish, you know, couldn't make head or tail of it, thought that Beethoven was crazy, like one idea would follow another, and you couldn't, it was just, they were lost, because they were so, it was so big, 
And then there was a, a, a younger group of people who immediately sort of latched onto its spirit and were um, enormously supportive of it. But my favorite review, given the fact that this is an hour-long symphony and there had never been a symphony even like half that length before, was this anonymous person that Albert Thayer, who was Beethoven's first biographer, best biographer, talks about, who at the first performance, you know, I wouldn't recommend any of you do it tonight, but if you do, you're in great historical company, and that is the guy who stood up in the middle of the fourth movement while the orchestra was playing and screamed out, I'll pay another Kreutzer if the thing will just stop. <laughs> so I don't think Pincus would like it very much if you did the same, but you know, if you had been in there, you would understand. You know, it's just so enormous. It's like, you know, going to a movie, and you're used to movies being, you know, an hour long, an hour and a half. You know, and this one's like four and a half hours long, and no one has told you that it's going to be that long, right? So that was basically, so the scale of, of the Eroica is enormous. But if we work backwards, the last movement is a theme in variations. You'll hear it. Um, and not only had Beethoven used a theme in variations for a last movement before, this specific theme in variations, he's plagiarizing himself. He'd actually written this piece before. It's called the Eroica Variations, where he wrote it for piano about a year earlier, and he basically orchestrated his own piece. So the last movement is far from revolutionary. It was Beethoven's second go at the same material. And it gets different at the end, but the beginning is note for note the same. The third movement, the scherzo, is, is, it's lively, but Beethoven has written those before. The second movement um, is a funeral march, um, which seems unusual, but you know, Beethoven had written a piano sonata about two or three years earlier that had a funeral march as its second movement. So even that isn't as revolutionary as it seems. I mean, what I haven't mentioned, of course, um, is the, the, the whole idea of the, the dedication and the heroicism of the heroica, which means heroic. Um, and, and I don't mention that a lot because to me it's, it's not nearly as significant as people think. And that is that originally the symphony was supposed to be dedicated to Napoleon because Napoleon was the great hero who took those ideals of the French Revolution, of the rights of man and the, the dignity of the individual and the power of democracy and, you know, liberté, égalité, and fraternité, and spread them all over Europe. So he was the great hero. And Beethoven supposedly was going to dedicate the symphony to him. And then in 1802, just before it was to be premiered, Napoleon had himself crowned emperor. He had, a, he had the ceremony, and the pope was going to put the crown on him, and Napoleon took the crown out of the pope's hands and put it on his own head, and he made himself emperor. And Beethoven supposedly, in a fury, um, because now, to him, Napoleon was now um, betraying the ideals of, of egalitarianism, scratched his name out um, of, the, of the dedication. Uh, literally, you can see the maybe, you know, in these stories, who knows, you know? Uh, but you can actually see that he scratched it so he heavily that he went right through the, the title page. Um, so, you know, so it became the heroic symphony, heroica, rather than... Um, the Napoleon Symphony that basically it was supposed to be. And it's true that even though he scratched out the name, he couldn't, he'd already written the work, so he couldn't scratch out the motivation behind it. But when you realize that, you know, that last movement he had written a year before, and, you know, it's, it's a great story, and I'm sure it's true, but I think we can overemphasize that connection with Napoleon. Beethoven believed himself to be Napoleon. It's so interesting to me. So the original title page that his friend Ferdinand Ries saw had 
Napoleon at the top and Beethoven at the bottom, you know? And to me, that's what the Eroica is. It's a double portrait. Yes, it's a portrait of Napoleon, but it's a portrait of Beethoven. That heroicism, that confidence, this is a work full of so much confidence. Um, that's, that's Beethoven's confidence. He, he, he feels himself, he's not making, the portrait is an internal portrait as well as an external portrait. And why we love the Oroca, why the Oroca is so important is that it's a portrait of every single one of us here. So if you go back to that heroic Beethoven that I began with, the, 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 the mytho mythological Beethoven, he's the person who is the individual standing against um, society, standing in a relationship to the, to the whatever, the absolute or the divine, call it whatever word you want to call it, um, by. But that sense that he has an immediate relationship with something powerful and he is bringing it to us. Well, that's how, we all, that's, how, that's how we live our lives now. This is, in fact, the gift that the French Revolution gave us. It is not the gift of equal rights for women or for lesbians or for gays. I mean, it is, that is the gift. The, the real gift is to be told that every single one of us has the ability, the responsibility, and um, basically the, 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 the equipment to understand the world, to face you know, the unknown, to be a hero ourselves. We're not just a member of a, of a, you know, a family, or we're not just a member of a clan, or we're not somebody whose whole world is circumscribed by what our fathers or mothers did for a living. You know, you know I read something that in the 18th century, most people never travel more than 10 miles away from the, where they live. Um, now, a lot of that had to do with transportation, but most of it had to do with the fact that you were born into a, a situation and you were stuck there, you know? And who you were didn't make any difference. If you happened to be born in the fancy house, you lived this kind of a life. If you happened to be born in this house, you lived that kind of a life, and you didn't enter the equation. Who you were was irrelevant. And the French Revolution said, who you are is central. That's the world we live in. That's why this world is so important, I think. And Beethoven is our hero. He's the guy, more than anyone else, who, um, who stood for that, you know? That's why this music is so important. It's not just music. It is, in fact, our values deep down, the things that are so important to us, I think, um, are embodied in this music. So let me go to the, so I've gone through fourth movement, third movement, second movement, first movement, okay? The first movement is quite unusual. And it's unusual only because it's long. And Beethoven, faced a real compositional problem in this movement. And the problem is, how do you keep interest going? 17 minutes is a long time to keep people's you know, interest. There's no words to this. There's no plot to it. How do you prevent them from getting bored, basically, or lost? And we can tell from the original reviews that a lot of people did get lost. And the reason for that is that, so what Beethoven did is, um, briefly, the, what we call sonata allegro form, or first movement form, was a form that basically had three sections to it. There's what's called an exposition, where you hear the sort of the music um, for the first time. There's a development section where it's like a play, right? Act one, you're, you're introduced to the characters. Um, in, there's a middle section where all sorts of stuff happens. And then, unlike a play, in, in the world of the symphonies, act three is called the recapitulation. And by and large, you hear the music from the first part, note for note. So it's not a dramatic form. It's a form about balance. You have this opening section and this closing section, which are perfectly balanced. They're almost exactly the same length. They're almost exactly the same notes. And then you have this development section in between. But the, the, the focus is on the balance. 
And that's the way Haydn wrote this form. And that's the way Mozart wrote this form. Balance. The, the, the key was to, to make you feel like, you know, like a classical building had this sense of balance about it. Beethoven, because he lived in a time where they started the calendar at year one and time stopped and then started again, balance wasn't, wasn't a value for him. Moving forward, the future, progress was a value for him. So Beethoven built the idea of drama into the first movement form. And drama means um, what happens at the end is really, really important. Again, a drama, you have an act one where you meet your, you know, your, your, your characters, and you have an act two where stuff happens. And then in act three, it all comes together. And you finally understand what the whole play was about. So Beethoven basically um, did that in the Eroica Symphony. That's what made it so special, is that he tacked on to the end of this form. So he had his same, his same thing, one, two, three. One section, two section, three sections. Um, he then tacked on an extra section and did something quite remarkable. Let's see if I have enough time to do this. Okay, I'm sorry. I talked so much, but I, I, I warned you, okay? Uh, this is the very opening of the symphony. Don't play it. So the very opening of the symphony, two amazing things. So normally symphonies have a slow introduction. You know, you get used to it so people can find their seats. This, this symphony starts with two cannon shots. Boom, boom, an E-flat chord. And they should be so loud that the roof should come off the concert hall, right? Because this is Beethoven, just, it's two cannon shots. Boom, boom, that's how it starts. So abrupt, right? Because he's telling us something big is coming. And then we have what we, looks like the first theme, the first character, which is really simple. Da, 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 da. And then something really, really weird happens. Like 15 seconds into a 17-minute piece, it, 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 it sort of sidles off as though Beethoven like, got lost for a second. It goes da, 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 da. And that goes from an E flat to a C sharp, which in music terms is like going so far out. Like, what's he doing? And then it stays there. Da, 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 da. And, and you'll listen, it, stay, it, it takes a little while to write itself. So why does Beethoven do this? Because he's trying to slow down the exposition. And so he, he opens with his, what you think is his main theme, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then immediately sort of moves away from it. The idea being, don't get too excited. You're going to be here for a good long time, <laughs> so let me slow things down. Why don't we just listen, just the very open, this is cut one. Listen to that. Okay, so those are those two cannon shots. Here we go to... And we haven't actually got back. We're all. Now we hear that main thing, right? Da, da, da. Okay, you know, fade that down. Now it doesn't seem like a big deal, and you can listen to this symphony without any idea how significant that is. But literally, 12 minutes later, so that's the way the thing starts. Da, 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 da. Um, and then you go through the exposition, and you have the development, and you come to the recapitulation. There's a funny little trick about that, but I don't have time to tell you this funny story. Um, but, and you come right back to the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Except now, Beethoven takes that da and turns it into another note, da, and, and opens up a whole new theme. He has been holding back the main theme for 14 minutes. You think that the main theme of this symphony is da 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 It's not. It's half the main theme. Beethoven is playing a trick on you, and when you wait until the, just near the end of the recapitulation, 
he actually um, he, he, uh, you know, shows us the real main theme, which is da 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 this triumphant horns blaring out. That's the actual main theme. Mozart, Haydn, everybody else would have given that to you right at the beginning. Beethoven holds you in suspense. In fact, that little C sharp is the thing that actually gives you a hint that that theme isn't complete yet. So the next thing I want to play is, so now we're, I'm, we're fast forwarding to, as I say, we've, we've come to, you have the exposition, you have the development, you have the recapitulation, and we're coming to what should be and what everybody in the hall thinks is the end of the piece. He has not yet revealed his main theme. And this is where Beethoven is revolutionary. It's, this, it's what happens next. So we're coming to the end of the recapitulation. It's all very, you can hear those kettle drums because it's, it's, it's very military, this piece. And these off beats, as I said, I, I, I just scratched the surface of this movement. You hear those kettle drums? That's cannons shots. That's Beethoven, the, the revolution. That's, that's Napoleon, the military man, right? This is very similar to what you've heard at the very beginning. In fact, this should be the very end of the piece, right here. And it doesn't end. And listen to what happens. It's just complete no man's land, right? Like, where are we, you know? He plays the theme, stops. Plays it again, different key, right? And you have no idea what's next. You have no idea what's next in this piece, right? And Beethoven has been waiting 15 minutes to let you hear this music. Could just turn it up a little bit, it's a bit soft here. So it's, it, he's, he's sort of teasing us a little bit. Now, this is a second theme that appeared right in the middle of the movement, this, this bit of music. He still hasn't given us the main theme, and it's full guys yet. And listen to this figure, this striding figure that's coming up. This is the hero striding. Not yet. It's all very light, and you can hear the giant start to move in the basses. Boom, 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 boom. It's like... It's like a giant stalking the land, right? This is the world that we live in coming into being, right? And listen to how it gets more and more um, dissonant, louder. Because he's Beethoven, then he makes it softer because he was a master at this. Now here, for the first time in the piece, is the real main theme, right? Horns. And listen to the violins, it's like garlands, people throwing garlands at the heroes. And he plays it again. This is what this piece is about, this moment of the music, right? And then it comes again. And you hear the kettle drums? This is like the military march. And here's the climax of the movement, 16 minutes into it, right? And it's just joy. It's just joy, right? You hear the kettle drums? It's just a bit. Now he slows it down a little bit. 
Listen for that striding figure because it's coming back. We're just about, we're about 90 seconds away from the end. This, these powerful statements, right? Boom, 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 boom. And those two cannon shots at the beginning and exactly the same two cannon shots at the end of that movement. 17 minutes long sometimes, 15 minutes, I have no idea how long Pinkus takes, but it takes a while, right? So that is immensely new, right? So he sort of gives away his hand, like that little goofy little da 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 Why is that da da there? That da da is there so that literally 15 minutes later, he can prepare you for this incredible climax. Da 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 da. It's, it's like an angel singing out a song of triumph, right? So that's why Beethoven is revolutionary. Beethoven is revolutionary because he did use musical techniques of form to embody the revolutionary message that he lived through. You know, that, that revolutionary message that would make a Wordsworth say it was blissed to be alive in that dawn and would have, you know, the Committee of Public Safety restart the calendar. So that's what you should be listening for in this Oroka. That's how significant it is, and that's how high the stakes are, you know? So this is like one of the greatest moments in Western civilization, you know? I always feel sorry for people who don't love classical music, because if you don't love classical music, it's like not knowing the Mona Lisa existed, you know? It's like not knowing the Sistine Chapel existed. It's like not knowing um, the novels of Jane Austen existed, you know, it's like key, a, a key element of what made us who we are today is denied to you. So, okay, I'll let you go. Enjoy yourself. Thank you very much. Thank you.
This has been an NEC podcast. You'll find more NEC podcasts, including the NACOcast sister podcast, Explore the Symphony, at nacpodcast.ca. You can subscribe to all of the NEC's podcasts for free in the iTunes Music Store. Just search for National Art Center. For free access to over 250 full-length, high-quality recordings of the NEC Orchestra, from Bach to Bartok, check out necmusicbox.ca. Send your comments and questions to necpodcasts at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's all for this edition of the NACOcast. I'm Martin Jones, sending in for Nick Atkinson. Goodbye for now from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Thank you.